I remember when, when the copy arrived at my house. I remember every moment of experiencing that book. <laughs> this is John Schumacher. He's best known as Mr. Shu. He says this very special book arrived on December 27th, 2011. I'll never forget that day. I was living on Periwinkle Lane, which was a magical street to live on. And I remember seeing a box on my front porch and I knew what was inside of that box immediately. So I brought the box into my house and I opened it and I actually was supposed to go to the movie theater later that day. And so I knew I had about an hour to read before I needed to go to the movie theater. And I started to read the book and immediately I felt like I was glued to the book. And I felt like I could not go to the movie theater because I needed to continue reading. And so Mr. Shu canceled his plans for the day and instead continued reading. And when you're glued to the book, you take the book everywhere with you. You take it to the refrigerator, you take it to the dinner table, you take it to the bathroom, you, you take it everywhere because you don't want to part from that story from that book. But then when you only have about five pages left, and this is what happened to me, you start to panic and you're like, no, I need more words and I need more story and I need more pages. And so I always say to kids on that day, December 27, 2011, I had a decision to make with only five pages left. Do I finish the book today or do I prolong the experience and finish it tomorrow? He decided to leave the last handful of pages for the next day. So he went upstairs, got into bed, and tried to go to sleep. But he was tossing and turning and couldn't stop thinking about this book. So finally, I got out of bed and I went downstairs and I read one page and then two pages and then three pages and then four pages. And then I only had one page left. And I always say to students, what do you think I did? And half of them always say you finished it. And half of them say you didn't. And I always say, no, I, I didn't finish it. I could not read that last page. So I went back upstairs and I got into bed. And, and I remember thinking, you are the most ridiculous human on this planet. Just finish the book. And so I got out of bed and I went downstairs and I read the last page. And when I read the last page, and this is why I'll never forget that moment, I cried and I cried and I cried. And I had a true catharsis. So what book affected Mr. Shu so much? I'm Lindsay Jacobson, and this is Remember Reading from HarperCollins, a podcast where we talk about classic children's books. On this episode, we're going to talk about that book. It's a contemporary classic called The One and Only Ivan by Catherine Applegate. It's about a gorilla who lives in a mall for people's entertainment. He finally decides that a small, confined space is no place for a gorilla to live and leads the charge for change. Mr. Shu is a librarian and the ambassador of school libraries for Scholastic. That means he goes around the country introducing kids to new books. He reads a lot of books, but this one was special. My life changed because of the one and only Ivan. We'll talk to the book's author, Catherine Applegate. I hope the writing was up to the task, particularly because it was inspired by a true story. We'll also hear from another author, Roseanne Parry, who writes often about animals and loves Ivan. An animal is, you know, they're all just themselves. And so it's much more raw. I think that's one reason why they're so compelling. 
Let's start with the book. Believe it or not, The One and Only Ivan is based on a true story. Catherine Applegate first encountered the real Ivan in a New York Times article. The headline was something like, Gorilla sulks in a Tacoma mall while his future is debated. And of course, that caught my eye. It was so bizarre. Ivan was a Western lowland gorilla. He had been born in 1962 in what is now the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Ivan was captured there and brought to the U.S., where the owners of a department store in Tacoma, Washington, bought him. At first, he lived with them in their home, like a pet. But as he grew bigger and stronger, he became destructive in his playfulness. There's a a family photo I've seen where he had gotten a hold of a couch and decimated it. And, you know, there's even a juvenile, they have incredible strength. And, of course, people don't realize that. So, yeah, I'm sure that was a a wake-up call. The family realized that having Ivan in their house was not sustainable. Instead, they put him in a cage in the mall. I've talked to so many adults who remember going to see Ivan as kids. And they lived in the Seattle-Tacoma area. And it was, you know, the thing you did. You'd go there on the weekend and wave at Ivan, and maybe he'd throw some poop at you. and Or he'd come up to the window and slam it with his enormous palm and scare the kids. And um, it was fun. I'm convinced, and I've only tangentially met some of the folks who were involved in Ivan's early life, but... I really believe they loved him, and I think they were trying to do what was best for him. It was just a very, very different time. It was funny to see a a gorilla wearing children's clothes going to a baseball game. Nobody thought, whoa, um, this is an animal that needs its natural environment and others of its own kind around. Over time, that mindset changed. Ivan spent 27 years at the mall, but the longer Ivan was there the more visitors walked away feeling upset rather than entertained by him. I can't tell you how many adults have told me that over time it became just too sad to do. They couldn't bear it. They couldn't bear to see him. And in fact, his demeanor changed over time and he became more and more passive. There's this horrible clip of him just looking at the cement wall and kind of knocking on it with his knuckle with the most forlorn, desperate expression, and your heart just aches. He seemed so out of place and miserable. Little by little, people started demanding that Ivan be placed somewhere more appropriate for a gorilla. So it was really beautiful, and it took a lot of advocacy. There were lawyers and judges and biologists and, you know, zoologists, so many people involved, and just regular folks standing out in front of the mall with signs saying, you know, free Ivan. It would not have happened with all all those many people. So I think that was very inspiring. And to be able to, to talk about that in a novel form was really tantalizing. So Catherine started doing research. A lot of research I did for the one and only Ivan had to do with going to see where he had lived to get a real sense of his captivity. And I sat in the archives, I think it was the Tacoma Public Library, and this wonderful librarian brought me out a big box full of yellowing newspaper clips about the real Ivan and his strange life. 
And it was the best way on earth to find all those little tidbits. He really did have a Barco lounger in his, in his tiny cage and a little black and white TV. In her first attempt at writing the book, Catherine says she wrote it almost journalistically, sticking to Ivan's real-life trajectory pretty closely. This is one of those things I always tell students. I almost threw Ivan away. And I have this little piece of paper on my desk that says, the question is, am I giving up on Ivan or not? Because I was so frustrated. And I knew nobody would ever want to read a first-person guerrilla narrative. And I just, I thought it was crazy. But as she revised, with the help of her editor, the story changed. For sure there were embellishments and changes. I fictionalized all the humans. That was very important to me because I was taking liberties, turning this into a fictional story. And I added characters. In real life, there were other animals in cages alongside Ivan. And there were many animals kind of meandering about throughout. The chicken on the fire truck, it seems to me that was... uh, real story. There definitely was a seal there who ate pennies and died, unfortunately. So they did have a strange menagerie kind of coming through. And then the concept of Ivan having a best friend, a little dog who could sneak in through a hole in his cage was irresistible. I needed an interlocutor. You know, you need somebody for Ivan to talk to. And originally, poor Bob was a, um, I think he started out as a roach, and then he became a mouse. And I realized, well, it's my story. I can make the hole bigger if I need to. (laughs) And at that point, he became a dog, a very small dog. The story is told from Ivan's perspective. It starts like this. I am Ivan. I am a gorilla. It's not as easy as it looks. Ivan lives in an enclosure at the mall. During the day, shoppers come to admire him, and he performs. But he is observing the humans, too. After our show, humans forage through the stores. A store is where humans buy things they need to survive. At the Big Top Mall, some stores sell new things. Things like balloons and t-shirts and caps to cover the gleaming heads of humans. Some stores sell old things. Things that smell dusty and damp and long forgotten. His friend Bob, the dog, sneaks in and out, keeping him company. But there are other animals there with him, too. Stella is an old, gentle elephant who's spent much of her life there, just like Ivan. But Stella and Ivan aren't attracting as many visitors as they once did. It's true that some of my visitors don't linger the way they used to. They stare through the glass. They cluck their tongues. They frown while I watch my TV. He looks lonely, they say. Not long ago, a little boy stood before my glass, tears streaming down his smooth red cheeks. He must be the loneliest gorilla in the world, he said, clutching his mother's hand. At times like that, I wish humans could understand me the way I can understand them. It's not so bad, I wanted to tell the little boy. With enough time, you can get used to almost anything. This is kind of how Ivan is. He accepts his situation. He calls his cage his domain. He doesn't remember, at first, too much about his family or where he came from. 
he doesn't pity himself too much or dwell on his situation. When I started out with Ivan, it was interesting because he's, I don't want to say passive, but he's an accepting character. He's in prison, basically, and he's long since accepted that nothing is going to change. And the only way to get through his days is to be a gentle uh, philosopher, a poet. He hasn't channeled his anger, and he hasn't felt anger. That starts to change when his keeper buys a new animal from a circus to draw crowds. It's a baby elephant. Her name is Ruby. Before the circus, I used to live with my mom and my aunts and my sisters and my cousins, Ruby says. She drops the hay, picks it up, twirls it. They're dead. I don't know what to say. I am not really enjoying this conversation, but I can see that Ruby isn't done talking. To be polite, I say, I'm sorry to hear that, Ruby. Humans killed them, she says. Who else? Bob asks. And we all fall silent. Ruby is young and sweet, and like all elephants, she remembers things. At first, Stella takes care of Ruby. But when Stella no longer can, Ivan promises to give Ruby a better life. And there's this moment in the book where Ivan seems to open his eyes to his own situation for the first time. Ruby is asking him questions, questions about how exactly he plans to make a better life for them. And then she asks, do you think that I'll die in this domain someday? Once again, I consider lying. But when I look at Ruby, the half-formed words die in my throat. Not if I can help it. I say instead. I feel something tighten in my chest, something dark and hot. And it's not a domain, I add. I pause, and then I say it. It's a cage. And the moment when he clicks over and says, this is a cage, is the same moment that he realizes he's responsible for making sure that Ruby has a different life because he's made that promise to Stella and he adored Stella and Stella adored Ruby and he's a gorilla of his word. And so begins Ivan's and Ruby's journey out of their cages and to a zoo, which at least has other animals like themselves and outdoor space and caring handlers. Catherine often writes about animals, real and made up. In the Stuart Little episode of this podcast, we spoke to Catherine about her new series called Endling, which recounts the plight of a creature on the verge of extinction. If you haven't heard that yet, I recommend you go back and listen after this. Her Animorphs books follow human characters who can transform into animals. I was a huge animal lover, and I always have been, and the very first story I ever remember writing was, weirdly enough, about a wild pig called a peccary. <laughs> so even then, long, long ago, I was, I was writing about animals. When she was 10 years old, Catherine became known as Gerbil Girl. Her mother had bought her a couple of gerbils for Christmas. They turned out to be a male and a female. And you can guess what happens next. 
I soon had many, many, many gerbil babies and eventually started giving them away, selling them, doing whatever I could to um, spread them around the neighborhood. And the little local paper did a front page story about the pert 10 year old with all her gerbils. So that was my claim to fame. For a long time, she thought she wanted to be a veterinarian. In high school, she worked for a vet. I assisted in surgery, cleaned up a lot of poop. But along the way, I realized I was more interested in, you know, what was going on in their heads than what was going on in their bodies. I was fascinated by animal communication. So that part, I think, is much more interesting to me. And I'm still fascinated by animal communication and about, I think, barriers between us, uh, humans and animals. That curiosity about animal communication has stayed with Catherine. In the one and only Ivan, we see the human world through Ivan's eyes. Suddenly, human behavior seems quite odd. Humans forage through stores. They never seem to carry dung balls. They spin pink clouds that they then eat. I asked Catherine how she worked to inhabit Ivan's mind. When you're trying to get into the mind of an animal, by definition, there's going to be some anthropomorphism. And it's frustrating. I mean, I'm imposing my human values and worldview onto an animal. And I can do all the research in the world. And, and I certainly did with the one and only Ivan. I love research. And I, I poured over books about gorillas and interviewed everybody I could find. But at the end of the day, of course, it's, it's a wild guess <laughs> in the literal sense. And so you do the best you can. People who write about animals, or even from the point of view of animals, they really tread a fine line. If they give them too many human characteristics, the animal doesn't get to be an animal. But if they don't have enough emotion, readers won't connect with them. This is something I wanted to talk about with Roseanne Parry, too. Roseanne is the author of A Wolf Called Wander. Her book is also written from the perspective of an animal, a wolf. The scientific point of view is that we should very much resist anthropomorphizing animals. Animals are animals and we should treat them as such. But as I sort of have delved into researching about wolves, I've come across many more scientists who have said, well... There are good reasons to resist anthropomorphizing animals, assigning human traits to them, but there is a certain arrogance in thinking that we can reserve certain emotions and motivations for humans only, right? There's a lot of arrogance in denying what we think of as human emotions and motivations to animals. So that's interesting, right, to think about is that sort of tension of how we treat animals. Roseanne says Catherine got the tension just right in the one and only Ivan. What I remember appreciating the most about it, both the first time and when I reread it, is the sense of Ivan's dignity as an animal, right? It has moments of humor and it has moments of real sadness, but throughout that sense of he is his own gorilla. He isn't a toy or a plaything or an advertisement. He is a being with his own thoughts and feelings. I love that. I thought she did a really good job of, I mean, from that really memorable first line, I am Ivan, I am a gorilla. It's not as easy as it looks, right? That's such a strong opening line. 
Roseanne says Catherine's understanding of what a gorilla is shines through in the book. Even as she gives Ivan a full inner life that is perhaps just a bit anthropomorphized. Things that I really love, like there's just a short little section that sort of gets at what is the essence of being a gorilla. Because he's talking about the sign outside that shows this angry gorilla bearing his fangs. And he says, that animal is supposed to be me, but the artist made a mistake. I am never angry. Anger is precious. A silverback uses anger to maintain order and warn his troop of danger. When my father beat his chest, it was to say, beware, listen, I am in charge. I am angry to protect you because that is what I was born to do. Here in my domain, there is no one to protect. In addition to being a writer, Roseanne is a bookseller in Portland, Oregon. She says she's been recommending Ivan to young readers since the book came out in 2012. She actually grew up not far from the mall where Ivan lived. I remember driving past that billboard, but when I was a child, my parents never took me inside. I think they knew that I would find it depressing, and I think they weren't very interested in that sort of thing. But I think they weren't keen to spend money propping up that sort of use of animals. Like Catherine, Roseanne is an animal lover. But it's not just that. She loves the outdoors and nature. In fact, she spoke to me from her treehouse, where she works. It's in a big Douglas fir tree, and on the one side of me there's a walnut tree, and on the other side of me there's some wild cherry trees. So, yeah, it's nice and shady in here. That's where she wrote part of A Wolf Called Wander. It's about a wolf who separates from his family after another wolf pack attacks them. He flees because the new pack claims his home turf as their own. As he looks to find a new territory where he could live, he travels further and further from familiar land until it turns into an epic journey. Like Ivan, Roseanne's book was inspired by a true story. It's based on an actual wolf in Oregon called OR7. So named because he was the seventh wolf in Oregon to wear a radio collar. So OR7 was born into the Imnaha Pack in northeastern Oregon in the Wallawa Mountains. When he was grown at about a year and a half, two years old, he dispersed from his pack. And maybe half of all wolves disperse from their pack, and usually they they head over to the pack next door <laughs> and join up with a different one in the area. And there were other packs to the east of him that he might have joined, but this wolf took off heading south and west into a place where nobody had seen wolves for decades. And so people were like, huh, where, <laughs> where does that wolf think he's going? Because he had a radio collar on, it pinged his location every six hours. They could trace his path across southeastern Oregon and all the way to southwestern Oregon in the Siskiyous. And then once he got to the Siskiyous, he stayed in that general area. But he was just wandering around out there all alone. And people were kind of wondering what would become of him. And then he found another wolf where nobody has seen a wolf for like 85, 90 years. It was really amazing. And they went on to have a litter of pups every year for at least five years. In the one and only Ivan, humans are everywhere. Though it's told from a gorilla's perspective, it's humans who are responsible for Ivan's entrapment. There are humans who abuse him 
and kind humans that he has a relationship with. And ultimately, it's humans who help him get to a better place. A Wolf Called Wander is a little different. While the scent of humans, the threat of them, is in the air, there are no important human characters in the story. Humans don't drive any of the conflict or action. And that was by design. There are some really great wolf stories out there that I had read as a child, and there are some more contemporary wolf stories, but they're all about a child who has a sort of a semi-magical relationship with a wolf. And I totally get the appeal of that, right? Because I love that kind of story when I was a kid. And I, I, I like it now, but one of the things that's become very apparent now that we've collared so many wolves is the lengths that wolves go to avoid us. They don't like us at all. <laughs> it's quite sad. We've given wolves plenty of reasons not to like us. And so they work hard to stay away from people. And so knowing that about wolves, knowing how hard they work to avoid human contact, I thought, oh, I wonder if I can write a story from a wolf's point of view that does not have any humans in it. Can that still be an interesting story for a human to read? And so that was like my dare to myself. My challenge is, can I really sink into that wolf's point of view deeply enough that it doesn't matter that there isn't a human companion in the story? I had no idea if it would work, I will say. I was, as I was writing, I was like, huh, I wonder if anyone will want this. Because <laughs> you don't know. I mean, when you're working on a story, you never know if it's going to find an audience or not. But I enjoyed the experiment of it. I really loved trying to sink into that point of view as deeply as I could. She read a lot of books and talked to a lot of people to learn all she could about wolves. She also tried to sort of see the world through the eyes of a wolf. While researching, she had the chance to camp in the Wallawa Mountains. I found myself like kneeling in the, in the forest a lot. <laughs> because if I'm kneeling down, right, that brings my adult height about to the height of an adult wolf. It was astonishing to me how different even just that difference in height makes. For example, it was much easier to find water if I was kneeling down because it was easier to hear it and it was easier to smell it even if I was that much closer to the ground. It sounds a little crazy to hear. I was astonished that that was true at all. But yeah, it made a lot of the things were easier to smell when I was closer to the ground. Wolves rely, they can see about as well as human beings do, but they rely a lot more on their smell and on their hearing. So I was always asking myself, well, what can I hear in this place? What can I smell in this place? and trying to round out my sense of the world in a more wolfish way. The resulting book is about the wolf's journey to safety, to a new home, to a mate. But it's also about the places he inhabits. Roseanne captures the smell, the vegetation, the feel of the land, and that becomes a character just like Wander himself. She wanted people to love the landscape as much as the wolf. Roseanne says she was lucky to find an editor who really got that. She said, you know, the job of combating global warming, the job of saving our planet, is not going to be easy. We've already blown past the simple solutions. And the only way that we're going to muster the will to tackle the harder ones is by having a sense of kinship with the wilderness. She wanted the readers to be able to, in their minds, put themselves 
in that wild place and come to love it and love it enough to defend it. Roseanne says it's easy for kids to love books about animals. Well, I think their sense of kinship with animals runs pretty deep because animals are powerless in many of the ways that they are powerless. So I think children sort of have an automatic sense of kinship there. So it's not surprising when kids ultimately feel empowered to defend the animals they grow to love through books. We're all in this together. The earth is the only place that we've got. There is no other air for us to breathe, and there's no other water for us to drink. And we're all drinking the same water, (laughs) and we're all breathing the same air. And so I think the trick to conservation is in all the decisions we make, big and little, trying to think as long a term as possible. Catherine Applegate says she's been surprised by how her book has moved kids to act. For example... After reading about Ivan, kids have raised money for various wildlife organizations and adopted gorillas in the wild. It's just wonderful to see them take that, you know, tiny gleam of an idea that turned into a book and to run with it and do magnificent things. The one and only Ivan has been made into a movie, scheduled to come out in 2020. I'll tell you, when I got to the end of the movie, they show the real Ivan. Until then, you don't really know that it's based on a true story. And it is the most compelling moment because you walk out of that theater, I hope, as a kid and think, wow, that's not right. And there might be things I can do to make the world a better place for animals. And if a handful of kids come out of that movie or the book and go on to to change the world in some small way, that, boy, that's the greatest reward of all. It led to a lot of important conversations. This is Mr. Shu again, the librarian. Fiction can inform how we live in the real world. It can teach us how to live right. And so often librarians, especially school librarians, know which book to put in a student's hands at that exact moment. And something that I often say is that when you do put the one and only Ivan into someone's hands, you're putting a lot of love and a lot of light and also laughter into their hands and thereby hopefully putting that into their hearts as well. Mr. Shu says he still doesn't know exactly what it was about Ivan that moved him so much. Perhaps it was Ivan's isolation and need for companionship. But all these years later, it's a book to which he comes back. A classic. Do I call them heart print books, touchstone books, forever books? And, and for me, those are the books that, you know, five years later, ten years later, I still think about and the characters still are within me and, and I wonder how they're doing. And, and I can recall really, really specific facts from those books and can still see scenes from those books. To me, those are the books that become heart print books, touchstone books for me. As for the real Ivan, he got more attention because of the book and more support. In 2012, the same year the one and only Ivan came out, Mr. Shu got to meet the real Ivan. People who had petitioned his owners to move him out of the mall and to a better environment had succeeded. And by then, he was living out his days at Zoo Atlanta. And I'll never forget arriving at the zoo. We arrived on a Thursday 
and I got to spend one hour with Ivan and with Jody. That was Ivan's caretaker at the zoo. And during that time, I watched Ivan eat blueberries, and he would take the blueberry and he'd throw it up into the air and he'd catch it in his mouth. And I watched him eat two oranges. And it was so weird because I, it was surreal, rather. It was, I wanted to go over to Ivan and say, how's Bob the dog? And, and how did you feel when that horrible thing happened to Stella? But of course, like Ivan, one couldn't speak. And then two, he was not the Ivan in the book. It didn't feel like looking at the same character. And that's what was challenging. I mean, I think of Ivan as being sensitive and gentle. And the real Ivan was very sensitive and gentle. Mr. Shu was able to see where Ivan lived, where he kept his toys, and Ivan liked to paint in the book and in real life. So Mr. Shu got to see his supplies and some of his original artwork, too. And then when we only had about five minutes left, Jody turned to me and she asked this question. She said, did you bring a copy of the one and only Ivan with you to the zoo to meet Ivan? And I, of course, said yes. I said something like, I never leave home without one. And so I reached into my bag and, and I took the copy out and she said, well, since you have a copy, would you like Ivan to sign your copy? Would you like him to autograph it? And of course I said, yes. <laughs> and so she said, okay, you need to put on a mask. And then in a few minutes, I'll meet you in that room over there. And so after about five minutes, I entered the room and I was able to stand so, so close to Ivan. There were only bars in between us. And Jody turned to Ivan and said, OK, Ivan, sign Mr. Shoe's book. And Ivan took his thumb. He put it into a small can of green paint and he made his mark inside of my book. And the, one of the last things that Jody said to me before we departed was, I hope that the one and only Ivan wins the Newberry Medal. <laughs> and a few months later, it did. <laughs> Catherine Applegate never did meet Ivan herself, but she has some of his finger paintings to remember him by. They're so cool. I have a dear friend from college days who tracked them down. They're very tired looking and um, looks like something, you know, a toddler would have done. And I'm told that red was his favorite color. It meant he was happy. But they were adorning my living room for some time. And my husband was like, must we? <laughs> so, so now they, they're strategically located in my office. But, um, but they're quite cool. It's funny to have a gorilla's paintings on your wall. Not every gorilla paints, of course. But Ivan, says Catherine, wasn't exactly a gorilla. It's an interesting thing because he was in real life uh, a sort of a hybrid, wasn't he? As Jody said, he never fully became a gorilla at the other end because he had spent so much time around humans. But channeling that, that part of himself that could just wander through Zoo Atlanta and look at grass and touch a flower. There's this amazing picture. It's sort of become iconic of Ivan reaching for a flower and clasping it in his hand and, and just looking at it. And you try to imagine what he must be thinking. It's such a beautiful image. I was trying to capture a little bit of that in the story as well. Towards the end of the book, after Ivan, through some very clever tricks, manages to get himself and Ruby moved to a zoo, he contemplates his new life. The zoo isn't the wild. It's not home. But there are other gorillas around. And he can go outdoors, smell the air, touch the grass. I lie awake, 
and try to remember what it was like being a gorilla. How did we move? How did we touch? How did we know who was boss? I try to think past the babies and the motorbikes and the popcorn and the short pants. I try to imagine Ivan as he might have been. Special thanks to Catherine Applegate, Roseanne Parry, and John Schumacher. By the way, Catherine just published a sequel to The One and Only Ivan. It's called The One and Only Bob. It's about Ivan's friend, the dog. For more about any of the books in this episode, visit harpercollins.com. If you love the podcast, let us know on Twitter at ReadingPod. Or you can head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. We read all of them. Visit rememberreading.com where you can learn more about our episodes. Remember Reading is produced by Irina Zhurov. And I'm Lindsay Jacobson. Until next time.